Hello and welcome to the podcast English for Life in the UK. This podcast is for those people who want to improve their English by listening to native English speakers talking about a range of subjects and at the same time learn more about life in this country. I'm joined today by John and Sheena. Sheena, how are you? Uh, fine, thank you, Mark. I think you've just come back from being away, haven't you? Uh, yes, I've just come back from Shropshire, which the countryside was lovely, especially because it was so sunny. Lovely. John, how are you? I'm good. Hello, Mark. Hello, Sheena. And happy St. George's Day. <laughs> that leads us in nicely to today's episode, which is mainly going to be about Shakespeare. Um, but there's something particular about this date. So we are recording this on the 23rd of April. And John, I think you're going to tell us a bit about why that's a special date. Yeah. The 23rd of April is um, the National Day of England because it is the feast day of St. George. Um, as well as England, he's also the patron saint of Catalonia, uh, of Georgia, obviously, and various other places. But um, since the uh, early Middle Ages, he has been um, very closely associated with England, uh, and particularly kings of England um, and the, the English army, which we will be looking at in relation to some of Shakespeare's writings later. Um, St. George was originally from what would now be probably modern-day Turkey or Syria in the Middle East, and he was a Christian martyr. So he was uh, a soldier in the Roman army under the emperor Diocletian. Now, Diocletian was the emperor before Constantine. So he's a, an anti-Christian. He was against the growing Christian faith in the Roman Empire. And the story, or maybe the myth, if you like, is that St. George converted to Christianity um, and refused to give up his faith, and he was executed for his Christian faith by Emperor Diocletian. Uh, so throughout the centuries, he's been revered as uh, a Christian martyr and eventually taken on as the patron saint of England. And what else is there about today's date then, John? But it was traditionally um, believed that our national poet, the Bard of England, William Shakespeare, was born on the 23rd of April. Um, it, I think, Mark, you're going to tell us about that and Sheena, but it's always uh, I've always thought it was a, a very nice coincidence that probably England, well, definitely England's most famous writer, one of England's most famous sons, was born on the Saints Day, the Patron Saints Day of England. Yes, apparently the evidence of exactly when Shakespeare was born is quite uncertain. Um, and I think Sheena's going to tell us later on a bit about the fact that actually there are quite a few things about Shakespeare we're not absolutely sure about. Um, and one of them is exactly when he was born. But it has been widely recognised, accepted that the 23rd of April um, is regarded as being Shakespeare's birthday. And as you say, John, fits nicely with the idea that it's also uh, St George's Day. Um, so Shakespeare was born in Stratford-upon-Avon, which is in the Midlands in, in England. Um, he... Uh, lived there for 
most of his life, although he did spend a lot of time in London, and we'll say more about that later. He was married to Anne Hathaway, and he had three children, Susanna, Hamnet and Judith. Hamnet sadly died quite young from the plague. But the thing about Shakespeare is that he is almost without doubt the most famous playwright in the world. Um, and he was very prolific. That means he, he wrote lots and lots of plays. So again, one of those things we're not absolutely sure of is exactly how many plays he wrote personally, but it's somewhere around 38, 39 plays that were written by Shakespeare. He also wrote 154 sonnets that were published. A sonnet is a poem. Um, his plays, you can broadly uh, categorise into, put them into three groups. There are the history plays. So those are often based around English kings, but also other historical characters. So some of the most famous ones, Richard III, Henry V, Henry VI, Julius Caesar, all real historical characters that he wrote uh, plays about. Then there are comedies, lots of comedies he wrote. The most some of the most famous are Midsummer Night's Dream, The Merchant of Venice, Much Ado About Nothing. And then there are a set of plays that are usually called tragedies. Um, and the most famous amongst those are Romeo and Juliet, Hamlet, King Lear and Macbeth. His, he wrote in a, um, a style of language at the time um, that from that historical period. Um, but his uh, plays have been both modernised and translated into more than 75 different languages. And Shakespeare is read and studied and performed in countries all around the world uh, these days. So I found out, for example, that the play Romeo, Romeo and Juliet was performed in 24 different countries in the last 10 years. And of course, many of these plays have also been made into films and TV programmes as well. So Sheena, tell us a little bit about uh, what you've been looking at about Shakespeare and a bit about your your favourite plays. Okay, thank you, Mark. I've been reading a little bit more about his background and discovered that actually he is a little bit of a mystery, even though he might be our most famous poet and playwright. We don't know an awful lot of facts about his life and even what he looks like. Um, we've got a few different uh, portraits of him one that's in the National Gallery, but that's quite a dull portrait. It's called the Chanders portrait. And we're not even sure whether that really was him. Uh, but recently, there's a new portrait that's come to life that's called the Cobb portrait. And that was, um, it was some... It was in some aristocratic house in Dublin and it's, it's, it's emerged more recently that this 
probably was an authentic painting of Shakespeare. And in this one, he's quite dashing, his clothing is quite fancy. So we see Shakespeare at his most successful. Um, in Stratford, as you mentioned, where he was born, we have Shakespeare's school, his houses, and the church where he was baptized and where his tomb is, thank goodness, were left with his words and his texts. And um, we're very lucky to have that because of all the texts, that, all the plays that were written, which is about 30,000 plays between the opening of the first theatre in London and then when they were shut down 60, 70 years later by the Puritans, of those 30,000 titles, only 230 have survived. And of those are the 38 or 39 plays of Shakespeare. The other thing that was lucky about Shakespeare was the fact that when he went to London to be an actor and a playwright, the theatre, theatres were just starting in London. Before that, kings, queens, aristocrats would have their own troupe of players and actors. But the first theatres were being built and they were so popular, they were desperate for new writers as well as actors, but writers. So he hit London at just, just the right time. Yeah, so lots and lots of theatres were built, um, one of them being the Globe, of course, that is still a reproduction of the Globe Theatre is there in London today. So we can see what the theatre looked like in Shakespeare's time. Um, in his time, the reason they needed so many plays was that they had to attract up to 2,000 spectators a day to make to make the, the, the theatre successful. And they would put on each time five or six different plays a week. So you can understand why play like, playwrights like Shakespeare, that, who was so versatile, could write plays that appeal to a massive, massively different audience was so popular. And the plays at the time, I think it's interesting that they didn't have scenery, they didn't have electricity, so they would be performed at two o'clock in the afternoon. Trumpets would announce the start of the play. Uh, people would pay. People would come from all classes, the poorest of people, even labourers, many, many labourers would take time off work to go to see Shakespeare's plays. And they would pay a penny if they were standing, if there were a groundling that stood on the ground, they would pay one penny. They would pay an extra penny if they wanted a seat and an extra penny again if they wanted a cushion. And inside the theatre, they could buy refreshments like apples and pears. And if they didn't like the performance, they would throw these apples and pears at the performers. So the plays had to be really good and they had to have a vast appeal to all different sections of society. And I would say that Shakespeare was very, very good at doing that, at having this wide appeal. And that was why he's still around today and so popular. So what are your what are your personal favourites, Sheena? It's hard to say because, as you said... There are so many different versions of 
each of his plays set in different times with different directors and costumes. Um, I think, I know John likes the history plays and I think one of my first favourite history plays was Richard II. I just, I I enjoyed studying that at school and then I was lucky to sing it at Stratford with David Tennant who plays Doctor Who or did play Doctor Who on the TV so the play was really popular with young people because they knew David Tennant from the TV series and they came to Stratford to see him in a play and they really enjoyed seeing him I think and they also came in their droves to see him in Hamlet so um, um, someone who was known to a young audience was was playing these important Shakespeare roles. Another play that I love is Macbeth, and we've been studying that with some um, St Augustine students, I think, who have enjoyed the story. And then we've had a look at some of the language each week as well. So it's given us a chance to look a bit more deeply into some of Shakespeare's language. Last week, we were looking at the phrase when Lady Macbeth tells Macbeth to look like the innocent flower, but be the serpent underneath it and hiding the fact that he was about to kill the king. I think that's what Shakespeare is so good at. I think choosing the right language is, 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 is his gift and a gift that keeps on giving. John, is there is there a particular play you want to talk about? I'm not particularly fond of the comedies. I don't know. Um, perhaps I, I think comedy is a difficult thing. I think it dates, doesn't it? I think things that people found funny or entertaining sometimes 100 years ago, 50 years ago even, don't always survive. But I've, uh, personally, I'm very interested in history. So I've always been more interested, as Sheena says, in the history plays. Um, I think it's fascinating when we look at his life. He was writing, from the most part of his life, in Elizabethan England. Um, so he was subject to uh, censorship, which is quite an important thing to remember. All his plays had to go in front of um, a man called the Master of the Revels. So if there was anything, and if we have to remember, we've done podcasts on this period, this was when the, the Protestant faith and Elizabeth's government, the Tudors were still had quite a shaky grip on power. There was still a lot of religious animosity. There was the Spanish Armada. Um, so he was kind of writing to some degree, some of his work could be seen as propaganda, perhaps for the Tudors and for the current regime. Um, but I do love the way that he writes about history. Um, and when we look back at people, especially like Richard III, and Henry V, it's almost impossible for us now in contemporary Britain to imagine them without imagining them the way that Shakespeare related them to us. So when we think of, don't we, Laurence Olivier playing Richard III and he's hunched over and he's quite evil, um, or we think perhaps of, you know, Henry V at the Battle of Agincourt and the famous uh, the famous lines of Shakespeare. And, and I think for historians, he's, he's kind of served a very interesting and useful purpose because when he writes about the 1400s, about the 15th century, about things like Agincourt and the War of the Roses, what we can't 
assume is, and what we don't know is intent. We know what happened. We know the dates of the battles. We know when kings and queens died, but it's very difficult to um, to look at and say what, what their intentions were uh, and the scheming and the things behind the scenes. And Shakespeare illustrates that wonderfully and gives us fills in the blanks. I think for for, for to some degree. So that's that's the side of Shakespeare that I've always been been interested in. Yeah. Right. We 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 have mentioned already, but it's maybe worth saying that of course. Um, very often these days, directors will take a Shakespearean play set in his or original Elizabethan times and will translate it into modern times. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I think one of the most famous is the musical West Side Story mm -hmm. uh, is actually based around the, the, the Romeo and Juliet story originally from Shakespeare and then yeah. became a completely a new story, but, but with some of the ideas that originally came from that, from that original play. And it's still, it's, it's played a very important political role throughout the centuries, even into the 20th century, the, the, the famous um, film interpretation of Henry V starring uh, Laurence Olivier, in the leading role was released in 1944, just in it's just a few weeks before the Allied invasion of Europe. So you were looking back to a 15th century, um, a, a, an English army going to war on the continent against a continental foe, and that was very much seen as being um, effectively a tool of propaganda during World War Two. That we were looking back to these ancient English heroes. Um, and they were translated into, you know, uh, a, a modern propaganda tool. So he's, he's, he's always stayed relevant, hasn't he, Mark? He's, he's, uh... yeah. On the language side as well, there are, of course, a lot of words, a lot of phrases from Shakespeare's plays that have found their way into everyday use. It, what we call idioms that are, that are used in a regular way. Um, in the English language now, but which originated in Shakespeare. There are a lot of them, but I think we're going to just mention one or two of them each. Sheena, have you got one that you're going to choose? I'll come back to Macbeth again. Uh, vanish into thin air. This is what Macbeth says when the witches just seem to disappear. And we use it now when we're looking for someone. If you're in a shop and you've lost someone, you say, I don't know where they've gone. They've just vanished into thin air. And when we say that, we are directly quoting Shakespeare and Macbeth. Great. John? We're, I'm back to Henry V again. And it's, uh, it's a phrase, that it's an idiom that you'll hear people use all the time. Uh, and that's uh, a heart of gold. So we say that about somebody, if they're a good person, if they're a kind person. Um, and that is in, uh, I think, Act 4, Scene 1, when Henry the King disguises himself as an ordinary soldier, and he goes amongst the soldiers and asks them what they think of the king, to which one of them replies, yes, I think the king has a heart of gold. So that's one of my favourites. That's lovely. Well, I was going to choose, and I don't know exactly where it, where it comes in the play, but Love is Blind is, is, comes from the Merchant of Venice. And... Uh, the idea of love, love is blind is that when people are in love, sometimes they will do stupid things. Uh, they will behave in a completely different way. Um, they will they will do things that you wouldn't expect them to do because 
love has blinded them. That idea is in a lot of Shakespeare's plays, like Midsummer Night's Dream and Romeo and Juliet, about people in love acting rashly. So as Mark pointed out, um, we, we think that Shakespeare was born on the 23rd of April, and that was in 1564. Uh, unfortunately for poor old William, he died on the 23rd of April, 1616, age 52. So very unluckily, died on his own birthday. So another reason for us to uh, rec re recognise this date that we're recording this podcast. Yeah. And it is also um, World Book Day for the oh. same reason. Because oh. the, the Spanish writer Cervantes died on the same date as well. So that, that date was the two great, the great English writer and the great Spanish writer. So that date was chosen for World Book Day. Language support. This is the part of the podcast where I choose some aspect of the English language from this episode and talk about it in a bit more detail. So today I'm going to choose idioms. So we talked about the fact that in Shakespeare there are a lot of idioms. So what is an idiom? Well, an idiom is a group of words in a particular order that have a meaning that's different from the meaning of each word on their own. They exist in most languages and they are phrases that come into common use. So we chose uh, three Shakespeare idioms uh, that are still used today uh, and I thought I'd give you another three. So the idea of a wild goose chase. This comes in Romeo and Juliet. And this is if you say somebody has been sent on a wild goose chase, it means a pointless exercise, something that's not going to produce anything useful at the end of it. Then the idea of somebody being a laughing stock. This comes from the Merry Wives of Windsor. And it comes from the old idea that people used to be put in what were called stocks, where you had your head and your hands were trapped in this wooden stock. And people would throw things at them and so and laugh at them. And so today we don't use stocks, but if somebody does something foolish or silly, we might say they're becoming a laughing stock. And then thirdly, from Shakespeare, the idea of being faint-hearted. This comes from Henry IV, and it means being timid, lacking courage, to be faint-hearted, to lack courage. So those are three more Shakespearean idioms. There are hundreds, and I would encourage you to... Uh, spot them, collect them, look them up, because they will be useful for your everyday English. I'm going to give you a few more. These don't come from Shakespeare. But for example, you can say, don't beat around the bush. Now, to beat around the bush means to avoid saying what you mean. 
So if you want to say, no, I don't want to do that, then just say that. Don't use lots of different words and ways of saying what you, re when you, what you really mean is no. So don't beat around the bush. And then almost the other side of that is the phrase, bite the bullet. To bite the bullet means to get something difficult or unpleasant over with, to get it done quickly. Bite the bullet, get on with it. Two more for you. Go back to the drawing board. A drawing board is literally a board or a piece of paper on which people used would draw things and still do these days. And to go back to the drawing board means to start over again. Because when you do something on a drawing board, you're usually planning it's the, in the early stages of doing something. So to go back, go back to the drawing mean, board means let's start over again. Let's rethink what we're trying to do. And finally, it's not rocket science. Rocket science is obviously making rockets to go up into space and the science behind how they work and that is a very complex and high level skill. If something is not rocket science then actually it means it's pretty easy. It's pretty easy to do, not particularly difficult. It's not rocket science. That's it for this week. I hope you found that useful. If you want to get hold of the transcript or find out more about other episodes and the work that we do, stay listening for the links to the website and our email address. Otherwise, we will see you again very soon. Goodbye for now. find the transcript, that's the written version of this episode, on our website www.staugustinescentrehalifax.org.uk and that's where you can also find links to all the other episodes and the transcripts so you can listen and read along at the same time. That's also where you can find out how to donate to help our work. We are a charity supporting particularly refugees, asylum seekers and migrants but also all those in need in our local area and uh, we would welcome your support if you felt able to give it. If you follow on the website the links to get involved and donate. We also have an email address that's English for Life in the UK at gmail.com. And we would love to hear from you, your thoughts on our podcast and ideas for the future. We also have a Twitter account at Esol Saint, and there is additional material on that site. I'll spell out all those addresses. So the website www.staug.org.uk 
U-S-T-I-N-E-S-C-E-N-T-R-E-H-A-L-I-F-A-X dot org dot uk. So that's the website. The email is English for Life in the UK at gmail.com and that's English for spelt F O R. And finally, the Twitter account is at capital E S O L capital S A I N tea.